0: Good morning everyone, you all are so talkative this morning, that is so fun. Glad to see you all this morning. We're going to get started. We're going to open with a prayer, but before we get to the prayer, a reminder that we've got sign-up sheets at both doors, bookmarks for those of you who need the schedule for the rest of this semester. If you've not received an email reminder over the last couple weeks, make sure you sign up on our list so we can get you on the list so that you know what is coming up. As we look ahead, just a quick note so that we're all on the same page. March 18th, that is spring break for many of the schools around here. We will not meet that week, but we will meet On Ash Wednesday, we will meet during Holy Week. So just know that we will be here for all of those things. Next Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And so make your plans to get your ashes. We have a 10 o'clock service before this service. We have a 12 o'clock service. I'm sorry, 10 o'clock before this class. And at 12 o'clock after this class. And so if that's convenient for you, you can join us to get your ashes here. We have, I think, five or six different services during the day on Ash Wednesday. So hopefully you can be here to begin your Lenten journey with us. Um, Another quick note, you will see little ads around the church and the bulletins and the Archangel about a Lenten podcast that we are doing. One of the things that we will be doing this Lenten season is a sermon series called reorder the disorder. And this has come about after many different little anecdotal conversations with people around feeling too busy to do some of the things that they think they should do or want to do. And so instead of one-on-one trying to help people kind of reprioritize we're gonna do it all together and to say that we can reorder what the world kind of creates as a disorder for our lives and one of the ways that we're going to do that is by doing daily prayer all together. So every morning, one of the priests here at St. Michael will have a podcast come out to do just 10 minutes of prayer. And that's going to be the daily reading with a daily meditation, the Lord's Prayer, nice and easy, something you can do at home, in the car, in the evening, whatever you prefer. But it's going to be daily through the podcast. And if you've never done a podcast, this is your opportunity to do your first It's nice and easy. And if you don't want to do that, then you can stream it on our website too. But the ask is going to be that everyone takes at least 10 minutes a day to say your daily prayers. If you do it on your own, great. And if that's something that you like, but don't often get a chance to do or make time to do, here is our sort of Lenten gift is the prayer for you. So you don't have to make it up. You don't have to even open a book. You can just sit with us for 10 minutes and focus and every day kind of center yourself on God. And then we'll move into Easter with an idea of how we can pledge our time and our talent in ministry together. And so you'll see this whole big arc. But so you know, starting a week from today on Ash Wednesday, that podcast and daily prayer will begin. And so I look forward to seeing all of you next week and also Hearing the podcast, yes. Computer, I guess. How do you the podcast? Yes. Question is, how do you do a podcast? Good question. Um, the easiest way to access a podcast is on your phone. See, someone has one right now. Um, phones make it very easy to do a podcast. These podcasts, if you subscribe, then they automatically update every day not sure where that phone is okay there you go um the podcast automatically updates every day so at 5 a.m every day this episode will pop you'll get a notification that says you just click right there and you can listen phones have different ways of accessing podcasts if you have an iphone then there is a native podcast app on your iphone and that's super easy and you can search for st michael dallas that's easy if you do not have an iPhone, there are many other applications that you can use on any other device that you have to play podcasts. If you go to our website stmichael.org/lent, you will have step-by-step directions of how to subscribe. So you don't have to figure it out on your own, just go stmichael.org/lent. Not only will it have all the services in Lent, but it will have instructions on how you can subscribe to this daily podcast. The other alternative is that you can just go to our website and stream the episodes straight off the website. That's perfectly easy to do. They're the exact same audio files. It's not perhaps quite as user-friendly, but it's actually still quite easy. So whichever you prefer is good, and I would love for you to try it. Yeah. Yes, so if you go to, uh, I haven't done it except for the Apple Podcast app. Is that what you're in? Yeah. So if you open up your Apple Podcast app and you can search for St. Michael, what did I search for? I think I searched for St. Michael Episcopal Church. No, I searched for St. Michael and All Angels. If you do St. Michael and All Angels, you will find it. And it looks like a little, I'm sorry? podcast app Mm -hmm. Um, okay so here's what I'm gonna say I know it's so confusing go to our website st.michael.org slash Lent there will be multiple ways for you to subscribe to this and it will walk you through step by step everyone's device is a little different and so how you access it will be a little different and so rather than going through each step by step the instructions are there on our website yes 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 so the episodes will come each day but they will be archived that means you can't listen ahead but you can listen to everything that has already happened So if for some reason you don't start on Ash Wednesday and you think, oh, I forgot about that, and it's a week later, you can actually catch up if you wish. Some of you may or may not know this. The Book of Common Prayer that we have has two different cycles in it. You've got the Sunday cycle, and that's a three-year cycle. That's what we use on Sundays or on the weekends. So every three years, you receive the same set of readings, There is also a daily cycle and that's a two year cycle. So in your prayer book, there is actually by day, 365 days, Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, gospel reading every single day. And so you can actually read through the entire Bible in two years by following that lectionary cycle. That is the cycle that we are using for the daily reflections is that daily cycle that goes every two years and if that is something that you've never heard before then catch me afterwards and i'll explain to you how you might do that it's actually a really great way to read the bible um, if you've never done it before because it tends to uh there tends to be enough variety to where you may not get lost or bored um, because it keeps things a little fresh Any other questions about that? Sorry to go off the rails with technology. Okay, let's open with a prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together this morning, and we give you thanks that with each of your new seasons, we have an opportunity to reimagine who you call us to be, to take a few weeks and discern and examine our gifts, our blessings, to be grateful for what we have and to consider how we can give more generously to those around us. As we close out the season of Epiphany and approach the season of Lent, I ask, us, I ask you to open our hearts and minds that we can begin to be inspired in fresh ways to help change our lives that we may grow closer to you day by day. Be with our friends who cannot be here today, especially those who need your healing touch, that they may be surrounded and uplifted by your love and by ours. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I missed you last week. I heard Ken did well with chapter 26. And so we're going to look at chapter 27 today. And as you may have noticed these these weeks right in here we don't have as much information to go over so a quick recap how we got here this is kind of the middle point in genesis this is a pivotal storyline that will set us up for everything that will come in the rest of genesis in particular how the israelite people find themselves in egypt so as we've, noted, as we've mentioned before, Genesis begins at the beginning and gets the Israelites all the way to Egypt. So that Exodus picks up in Egypt and tells the story of how they were delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians and brought into the Promised Land. So there's the kind of big arc, Genesis to Exodus. How we get here is we began with story of creation, We get a cycle of stories where people make mistakes, but then God intervenes, and a cycle of covenants that God makes with creation. God's promises and covenants shift from being very God-centric to becoming a partnership with humanity. So at the beginning, God's partnership or promise is given just completely to Adam and Eve. Then as we move forward, God's covenant or promise with Noah shifts just a little bit, not only from God, but to Noah's, Noah has a little bit more responsibility to go off and care for creation. As we move forward to Abraham, that onus shifts a little bit more, still not 50-50, But Abraham has to show that his pledge of um, love and faithfulness and fidelity to God is something very real. And we know that that promise is made through circumcision. As we get to Moses, which we won't actually get all the way to Exodus, that shift becomes more 50-50, Where God makes a promise, humanity then has to reciprocate that promise by following commandments and laws in order to live in a particular way that God wants them to live. Why all this matters to us in these stories is the same thing I've said multiple times this year. It's the Jewish people in exile writing the stories that we are looking at in Genesis. They have already received a covenant that really does seem like a split, a shared agreement between God and God's chosen people, the Israelites. That's important when we get to Jacob and Esau and the kind of rift that forms between the two of them, because the story that we're going to look at in chapter 27 is, in all fairness, kind of a ridiculous story but it's important for us to understand that the story is being told for a particular purpose, and that is to get to, effectively, Moses, to get to the place where the Israelites become Jewish. So it's important to note here, they are Israelite. They are not Jewish yet. The Israelites do not become Jewish until they are at Mount Sinai. After having been delivered out of Egypt, where God gives them the commandments. Those commandments are given and received, and the Israelites begin to form an identity that becomes less about their tribal or racial or cultural identity, and more about a religious choice that they make. That then gets refined over time, particularly in the exile when they're constructing these stories, so that by the time Jesus comes around, the Jewish tradition is incredibly dense and rich and detailed, almost to the point where it has now become a distraction from what is the purity of the love covenant that God really wants to make, which is, in effect, Jesus' message to the Jews, is that the rules, they're a little too much. God's love is more simple. And receiving God's love is much more simple. Okay, there's the big arc to where we are right now with Jacob and Esau. Any questions about last week since I wasn't here or perhaps the way that this story connects? I always wonder if that reaction is just stunned confusion (laughs) or not. Okay, chapter 27, really just two sections. The first, Isaac blesses Jacob, and the second, is Esau gets angry. So we're gonna take a look at the very last verse of chapter 26. Because that's important to set our story up. So if you look at chapter 26, really it's the last two verses. Verses 34 and five. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Barry the Hittite, and Basmuth, daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This sets up our story in chapter 27. It is very important to note that Esau's choice of a wife or wives is very different than what his family has set up as an expectation. So remember when it was time for Isaac to find a wife, they did not look around locally But instead, Abraham sent a servant all the way back to where he came from in order to find the right kind of woman for his son, Isaac. It was very important for Abraham's bloodline to continue, because if you imagine that you are the people in exile, one of the critical components of your identity in exile is maintaining the purity of your identity. So if all of these Jews, these Israelites, have been taken from their homeland up into Babylon, it would be very easy for them to meet nice Babylonian people and have nice mixed Babylonian Israelite children, and everything would be okay, except that was not what they wanted to do. They had a sense of maintaining a purity of their bloodline that they are reinforcing in the way that they tell these stories in genesis it is very important that esau make this kind of wrong choice because the narrative will ultimately show that jacob does some bad stuff but jacob's bad stuff is not as bad as esau's bad stuff does that make sense So Esau has made poor choices for his wives. Now let's jump into chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called his elder son Esau and said to him, my son, and he answered him, here I am. He said, see, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Then prepare for me a savory food, such as I like, and bring it to me to eat, so that I may bless you before I die. We'll pause there. Isaac knows he is on his way out. Isaac has gotten old enough to where he can't see very well, which will come in be very important. And in in his ill state, he realizes that he needs to pass on a blessing to his sons. Now, if we are looking and reading closely, you may ask the question, what's a blessing? And if we remember a couple chapters ago, Esau traded his birthright to Jacob for some food. So what is the difference between a blessing and a birthright? Because when I first read this, I thought, wait a minute. I thought we had resolved this. I thought Esau had kind of given away the being the heir in the family. Now Isaac is calling Esau over to say, let me bless you. So what's the difference? A birthright in the ancient world is more of a legally binding arrangement. That is more like inheritance. So yes, at this point in the story, Esau has traded away his right to inherit what is ultimately the wealth of the family. And if we consider what Abraham built and then what Isaac inherited, this would be material, right? This is not just some junk in the tent. This would be a decent estate, Abraham came all the way from Ur, which would be kind of southeast Iraq, down into southern Israel. And we talked before about how Israel is kind of like a a geographic parfait. Up in the north part of the parfait, you've got very fertile land, very green, very lush. In the middle part of the parfait, you've got enough water to grow some stuff, like olive trees, things that don't need a lot of water, but can still be relatively productive and helpful. In the southern part of Israel, in the Negev, that is a desert. It is not easy to grow anything there. Abraham came all the way to the middle, near Jerusalem, but couldn't find any land because people already lived where they could grow some stuff. And so Abraham had to kind of go outside a town, a little farther south into what was effectively the desert, which meant he had to raise animals, couldn't really grow stuff. And so he became a herdsman and he had lots of herds and those herds grew and grew, partially because Abraham traded Sarah off as his sister multiple times and received extra stuff, right? So we remember those stories. But Abraham built for himself quite an estate as a herdsman. Isaac has inherited that, which means the birthright That inheritance is very material. That's already going to Jacob. A blessing, however, is different. A blessing still matters because a blessing is more like the honor and the dignity, the character or the integrity of a family. All right, so Jacob may have the stuff, but Esau could still receive kind of the family mantle so to speak. He could still be the one who was chosen and literally blessed by Isaac in order to kind of carry on the family's dignity and character in the community. Both matter. I think it's easy to, well, I may say that the birthright may matter more in the end, but the blessing is not Um, a small thing. That's important for us to note because it does appear next, like Rebecca in particular really wants her favorite son to have both. And remember, Isaac and Rebecca have favorites. Isaac's favorite is Esau. Rebecca's favorite is Jacob. And they are now competing for which one of their sons is going to really get it all. Questions about blessing and birthright? It's not the clearest distinction, but it's because it's not a clear distinction. All right, let's keep going. Verse six. Rebekah said to her son Jacob, jump to verse nine, go to the flock, And get me two choice kids so that I may prepare from them savory food for your father, such as he likes, and you shall take it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. We'll pause there. So Rebecca's favorite son gets a little bit of a head start on Esau. So Isaac says to Esau, the hunter, go out, hunt an animal, prepare it for me to eat And we will effectively have this ritual or ceremony where Esau offers to his father something that he earned so that his father can then return a blessing upon him. Rebecca hears this and tells Jacob to go and just get some good animals, right? So they've got some goats over in the pen. Remember the herdsmen find a couple good ones. Let's go ahead and prepare the food because we can get out ahead of Esau. Esau's got to go hunt something, but we've got some goats right here. Go kill them. Let's cook them. And then you can get in the tent before Esau can get back. Does that make sense? Keep going. Verse 11. But Jacob said to his mother, Rebekah, look, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a man of smooth skin. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my word and go get them for me. So he went out, got them, brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared savory foods such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. And she put the skins of the kids on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she handed the savory food and the bread that she had prepared to her son Jacob. So this is the part of the story that I said is just a little ridiculous. So as a child, I loved this story because it was so very tangible. So it's food, right? We get good food. But Jacob is effectively saying, mom. Like dad may be kinda blind, but he's not stupid, right? He's gonna know it's not Esau. I don't sound like Esau. I don't look like Esau. I don't feel like Esau. I don't smell like Esau, right? All of these things. And so Rebecca, who here is really the one who is duping her husband, right? We should note, Jacob and Rebecca are really made for each other because (laughs) Jacob makes this food and really kind of dupes Esau into the birthright. But in this moment, this is not really Jacob's doing. Rebecca is the one making this happen. Rebecca realizes that The blessing will matter, too. Like, it's not good enough for Jacob to get most of the stuff. Jacob needs to get all the stuff. Jacob almost seems to be saying here, the birthright matters most. I got it already. So really, just let Esau have the blessing. Rebecca says, no, no, I want you to get 100%. And so they do, she prepares this food, she puts Esau's clothes on Jacob, which is very literally to make him smell like Esau, right? So if you imagine, they're very different guys. Esau is the outdoors guy, right? He's the hunter, he's working outside, Jacob's the inside guy, he's the one in the tent. So I imagine Esau smells different than Jacob, who lives in the tent. Um, Esau is rougher, he is hairier, he has this kind of, um, well, that's good enough. So Jacob is just, Jacob's just too smooth. And so they put the skins on Jacob to fool Isaac, so that when he goes in, even though Isaac may hear a different voice, he's going to have multiple different ways to prove that he is Esau and not Jacob. This next part of the story, to me, has always felt a little bit like Red Riding Hood. You know, when Red Riding Hood goes into the house and says, say, gee, grandma, what big ears you have. And, you know, all the better to hear you with, my dear, right? I mean, it does seem like you get this back and forth, like Isaac is sitting there like, wait a minute, you know? what is happening right now? And he's like, no, really, smell me, feel me, right? I mean, and I can imagine Jacob goes in like, oh, hi, dad, you know, I mean, it's just, I guess we have no idea what their voices sound like, but I imagine that Jacob probably sounds more like me. And Esau probably sounds more like my son. Hi, hey, you know, so Jacob has set himself up to go in and do the best he can to try and dupe Isaac. So let's just read the story because it's, it's good enough to just read through. Starting with verse 18. So Jacob went into his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my games that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went up to his father, Isaac, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? <laughs> Sorry. He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. In this moment, Jacob has won. He has figured out how to convince Isaac that he is actually Esau. And as I mentioned, you have the multiple moments where Isaac says, wait a minute, you know, you sound like Jacob, no, I'm not Jacob, I'm Esau. And then he says, well, you feel like Esau and you smell like Esau, so you must be. It's surreal. If any of you, for those of you who have children and more than one child, Closing your eyes does not somehow make you unable to determine which of your children is which, right? I mean, even twins, Jacob and Esau are obviously fraternal, not identical twins, but even twins who are identical. I mean, I think that most of the time you can probably tell I do not have twins, but I have to think that parents can probably distinguish between the two. So this is a very odd moment where Isaac is either just simply not with it enough. I mean, he is too ill to really make the distinction, or somehow Jacob has been so successful in his costume that he has fooled Isaac. Or there's a third reason. It is very important that Jacob be the one who receives the blessing, and why? If we look at the last few chapters, how is God referred to? God is always referenced as being the God of the Father. So, Jacob refers to your God when he speaks to Isaac. Isaac refers to the God of my father, Abraham. It is very important to note that the identity and the loyalty of God falls to this family. If you put yourself in the place of the Jews who are in exile, God's location is now not as integral to God's identity. Until God... I know we haven't studied this, but hopefully you know the story well enough to imagine God in the wilderness around Sinai. Remember, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, God appears how? In fire and in cloud. Do you remember that? As they're leaving and they approach the Red Sea and the sea parts and they go to the mountain, God physically rests in different places, including the tent. So once Moses receives the Ten Commandments, God's presence becomes like a cloud over the tent where the ark is. And as the Israelites move through the wilderness before they get to the promised land, God's presence physically moves with them. And as the story goes in Exodus, God descends upon the tent and the Israelites stay there until God goes back up then the Israelites know it's time for them to move. And they do this, and we know, of course, for 40 plus years, prior to to Joshua finally taking them into the promised land. And even when they're in the promised land, God is not physically present until David brings the ark into Jerusalem and Solomon builds the temple. And all of a sudden, God is present, period. God's not going anywhere. That worked for generations until they were sacked and the temple was destroyed. And so now these Jews who have always understood God as being physically located in a place now have to ask the question, we'll cover. We'll, we'll, wait a minute. So if God was in the temple and we knew God was physically there, but the temple is no more, is God gone? And so as they begin to look back at their own stories, what they realized is that God's fidelity is actually passed through the families of the Jewish people. First with Abraham, and then through Isaac, and then ultimately through Jacob. That blessing is actually where God is located. And so it is critically important in the telling of this story, that Jacob not just get the stuff, but that Jacob receives God himself, right? The Yahweh goes from father to son and then father to son and on and on. This blessing moment becomes very important in the future as well. We will get in 10 or so chapters to a place, actually no, it's more like 20 chapters, Where the blessing doesn't continue in the way that it should. Jacob himself actually goes to bless Joseph's sons and he crosses his hands and ends up blessing, giving the primary blessing to the younger son. We will get there. But this idea of blessing and who gets what blessing goes beyond just a ceremonial reality and becomes the way in which God's actual identity and location is passed on from person to person. (laughs) Yeah, okay, thank you, counselor. Um, So, yes, for all of the attorneys or people who know attorneys, which is pretty much every person in this room, um, I think it's important. In fact, I literally wrote in my notes, for modern listeners, this moment of misappropriated blessing seems like it could be easily undone, right? So any good lawyer would say, wait a minute, right? Isaac could just simply say, "Uh, I take that back, right? And I'm gonna bless or re-bless or bless again Esau instead. And in fact, in the next few verses, we're going to see part of what angers Esau is he comes back right on the heels of Jacob with all his stuff, right? He's gone out, he's killed the animal, he's made the food, he's ready to go. And Isaac says, who are you? And Esau realizes what has happened and says, wait a minute, well, bless me. I'm right here. Just give me the blessing. And Isaac says, sorry, it's gone. And Esau says, well, what are you talking about? Do you not save a blessing for me? Can you not just like, just say it again, right? I mean, like what? All of that's important because there is this sin. That's why I said it's about kind of God's location here. The Jewish people do not yet have a sense of God being everywhere. God is in some places and not in other places. Um, I think it would be fair to say that there are certainly some Jewish groups today, so not the reformed Jews that probably many of us know, um, but if you go to very conservative Jewish sects, there are probably still is a sense that God isn't everywhere. God is actually in particular places. And for the storytellers here, God's place is actually in the person. And so we hear Isaac's blessing as something verbal, but what the storytellers are really intending is for that blessing to be a literal, almost physical gift from one person to the next. So it is, in in the way that they are telling the story, Isaac almost has this power, this God inside of him, that he can give away, and once it's given away, it's given. Jacob is the one who receives it. That's it. Isaac can't give it again, because it is no longer Isaac's. It is now Jacob's. That is a weirdness to us, mostly because we don't think God is somewhere and not everywhere. I mean, we really do have the sense that God's everywhere. That's part of, I think, what what we kind of wrestle with in a modern sensibility is that a lot of people will say things like, well, I don't really wanna go to church, but I go out for a run and God's there, right? In the forest or by the lake or whatever. And what I really wanna say is maybe, Um, But the truth is, yes, God is there too. But I do think as sacramental people, we do make a distinction about God's presence in a general sense and God's presence in a very specific sense. You know, as sacramental Christians, We do say, whether we believe it or not, we do say that in sacramental moments like the Eucharist, God's presence is somehow better, deeper, more complete, more intense, however you want to say it. There is something about all of us gathering together and praying in a particular way that brings God's presence with more weight, than just everywhere all the time and I'm very comfortable with that not to say that we can somehow channel God but I do think as we pray and we pray more specifically and more intentionally God's presence almost resonates with more strength and that's effectively where we get our sacramentalism. I think we can become a little too precious and dare I say, heretical with that, if we aren't careful. But in a sense, the Jews are articulating the same idea that somehow God's promise to Abraham became weighty, and Abraham's mantle was passed on to Isaac, and Isaac has now passed it on to Jacob. He doesn't get to pass it on again. And so, in a sense, a legal argument could be made that Jacob can, I mean, Isaac can basically like take it back. But that's not really what's happening here because it's not Isaac's to give and take back and then give again. It's really something that God has given to him and that he gets to pass along. Does that make sense? This is not, this is a story. And so, I want to decouple what sounds literal about the story from what the storytellers intend. So is God literally in Isaac to then be given to Jacob? No, but that is the story. That is the way that the storytellers understand God's promise which is why they tell the story this way and why the next section with Esau's anger is really kind of a tragedy, right? So let's jump into that. The rest of this chapter is sort of, is sort of a sad period, point in the story. I mean, I feel for Esau here. Esau is a simple guy. Right, Esau's just a hard worker. He seems to be, I mean, we have no reason to think he's not a nice person, that he's probably not a contributor, that he likely treats people well. I mean, we have no evidence to the contrary, but Esau is not strategic. He's not conniving. He's not manipulative. He's not maybe as sophisticated. I hate to say he's not as smart as Jacob, but in a sense, he has just been outdone here, right? He has, he's playing checkers and Jacob's playing chess, right? I mean, Esau's just not complex enough to have anticipated these moves. His political sensibility is not as sharp as Jacob's. And so in this moment, it's, I, just, I feel for him. So let's look at verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father Isaac, his brother Esau came in from the hunt. He also prepared savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father sit up and eat of his son's game so that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I'm your firstborn son, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then "'that hunted game and brought it to me, "'and I ate it all before you came, "'and I have blessed him. "'Yes, and blessed he shall be.' "'And when Esau heard his father's words, "'he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry "'and said to his father, "'Bless me, me also, father.' "'But he said, "'Your brother came deceitfully, "'and he has taken away your blessing.' "'And Esau said, "'Is he not rightly named Jacob? "'For he has supplanted me these two times.' He took away my birthright and look, now he has taken away my blessing. Oh, I mean, it's kind of like breaks my heart. Poor Esau has just been totally undermined here. And remember back when they were born, I noted that Esau's name means red and hairy and Jacob's name means deceiver, trickster. And so when Esau says here, he is rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times. So Jacob has lived up to his name. He is the trickster. Not only did he deceive him with his birthright, but look, now he has taken away my blessing. As I noted before, Esau is the firstborn son, but for the storytellers, Esau's not there patriarch. Esau becomes the father of the Edomites. So the Edomites are a Semitic it, The Edomites are a Semitic tribe that kind of coexist around the Israelites. We can better understand this by looking at the Samaritans. So you may have heard me say this before, I think I've preached about this at least once here, where we know the story of the Samaritans. Samaritans are always kind of held up as the people who aren't that great in the gospels. The Sadducees, Pharisees do not like the Samaritans. But what many of us don't realize that Samaritans are also effectively Israelites. They're also Semitic peoples. What they are though, are not the really religious, Semitic peoples they are the ones that live kind of around Jerusalem so the Samaritans share a culture that is very much like the Jewish religious in Jerusalem but they're not quite as legalistic in their identity and so when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan what Jesus is really saying is not that this Samaritan person did something so unsamaritan-like. No, what Jesus is saying is you've got the religious people who are on their way to the temple, and they do not help the person who has been beaten up because they don't want to become ritualistic, ritually unclean on their way to the temple or else they won't be able to worship God all right, literally touching the person who has been beaten up will mean they can't go to the temple and worship themselves. They are prioritizing getting into the temple to worship the right way over helping a person who's dying on the side of the road. The Samaritan comes along and the Samaritan does what the Jews should have done, which is just help the person who's dying on the side of the road. Not because the Samaritans are somehow these savages and that that one Samaritan is exceptional. No, what Jesus is saying is that Samaritan has not been so blinded by the extreme religious rules that they're able to see the humanity, see the need that this person has and do the right thing. In a very similar way, the Edomites live in and around those religious Jews in Jerusalem. However, the storytellers are trying to defend their own religiousness, their own legal authority. And so in the same way that Lot's daughters' kids are kind of those other people, second-class citizens, Esau's descendants are also second class. This story allows for the narrative of being better than them to be reinforced. Does that make sense? There is not much sympathy here for Esau, but Esau does get mad. And remember, Esau is the big one, right? He's the outdoors one. He's the strong one. And so Jacob may be able to beat Esau in a political game of wits, but Esau could literally beat Jacob. So look at verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching Then." I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of her elder son Esau were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Flee at once to my brother Laban and Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger against you turns away, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? So Rebecca has achieved what she sought out to achieve, but at an expense. She's now having to send her son, her favorite, away. Now we'll remember real fast, right? She's sending Jacob back to where she's from. Remember Abraham sent his servant to go over to their house, to over back to where they're from in Ur, find a wife, and he found Rebekah, whose brother Laban is still there. So Rebekah has come all the way over to Israel, but Laban's still back over there doing all his family stuff. And so Rebekah, to save Jacob's life, is sending him back to his brother. That will set up decades of time that Jacob will spend over in Ur with Laban. And we'll get there because that's where Jacob finds his wives. That's where he starts to have his kids. And so as the story goes, Isaac has kept the bloodline pure. And now Jacob, even if Jacob is trying to flee Esau's rage, he will do so in a way that allows him to maintain his bloodline as well. So that now Jacob's children will be the right people. Remember, Esau married the Hittite girls. And so Esau's mixed children will not be the bloodline that inherits God's promise. All right, questions about this? So the question is how do you reconcile that God is doing something underhanded Is that right? Yeah. Um, I can answer that in a couple different ways. It's a good question because multiple times in the Bible, we could easily say God's not doing the right thing here. Um, I don't know that this is one of those moments because God's not really directing the action in chapter 27. Um, I mean, God's not absent, but this is a very human story. This one section of the story, if we're looking just at chapter 27, it's very human. God's not telling Rebecca to do stuff. Rebecca's doing that stuff. God's not telling Jacob to do that stuff. Jacob is doing that stuff. That's the way the story is told. Now, the hearers of this story are reading into it a greater purpose because God's promise and purpose is being worked through this human messiness. So on the one hand you could say that God is effectively um, condoning these bad actions by allowing the blessing to be carried through, but God's not at the direction of this. So I actually don't mind drawing the conclusion that God allows the mess to be used for good, because I think that is effectively what we should all trust. None of us are doing it all right. Some of us are more messy than others. I think we all probably think we know people who are more messy than us, right? But mess is a sliding scale, right? We're all messy, sometimes more than other times. I think it's extremely comforting to know that God may not direct our mistakes, but even in our mistakes, God can work his purpose. And I think that's very, that's a good thing for us to live into. And we don't tend to like that because we tend to like the whole like God's got a purpose and a plan. And so our mistakes are part of the plan. I think that's a little dangerous because I think that when we make bad choices, we should not put the responsibility on God. But we can put our trust in God that when we make bad choices, God can actually turn that bad into something good. And that's what we're seeing in this story. If we read this as charitably as we can, effectively, God's using this mess in order to work out a bigger, better purpose. And that feels good to me. And I'm sorry I saw your hand, but if you've got questions, write them down on the uh, cards that are in the pews or send me an email and I will get to them next week. Thank you all. Have a good week.